Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, uh, changing from one state to another. Uh, things about fundraising that maybe were taking longer than expected. I mean, I think that we're going to be learning everything in between. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David McFarland. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Good to be here. So let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane, David. So originally from south of Florida, but you did move quite a little bit, especially when you were 15. So give us a walk through memory lane on how were your upbringings. Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up down in Fort Lauderdale and had a, had a pretty great experience down there. It was, it was interesting to uh, grow up in a pretty diverse environment. And then I, I subsequently moved to Columbus, Georgia, which was uh, lacking in diversity, let's say. <laughs> but even so, it was, it was a neat experience. Went there for high school and college, uh, learned a lot. Ended up back in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and uh, met my wife there, and then we've we've been to a few places since then. Nice. So when you were 15, uh, you moved to Georgia, as you were saying, and I think that that's the time where you really got present to the love for math. So how did that come about? Yeah, I, I actually resisted that love for a little while, but it, but it kept kind of chasing me down. So 
when I was when I was in high school, I kind of had a natural knack for it, and then I uh, focused on a lot of things I think everyone else focuses on when they're in college, you know, goofing around, uh, partying, all that kind of stuff. So uh, really geared my studies more toward what I found mildly interesting, like history and whatnot. But one day I reluctantly took a math class uh, in formal logic, actually. And I, I realized that I had a, 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 a huge passion for problem solving. And I asked the teacher what I had to do to do this every day for the rest of my life. And he was like, either, either become a mathematician or a lawyer. And I did not want to go to law school. I was ready to be done with school. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be a mathematician. So the next day I went to the registrar in my junior year of, of college. And they basically said, like, look, we do not recommend doing this. You are going to have to take you know, 24 hours every single semester in order to, to do this. Uh, if you want to graduate in time, I, I kept pushing and they put me on the actuarial track so that I could graduate at least in a, some semblance of a reasonable amount of time. I didn't know what that word meant, uh, but I, I did it. And the next semester, you know, I loaded up with like 24 hours, much math classes. And then uh, someone, uh, a girl in one of my math classes asked me, uh, you know, if I was taking the actuarial exams. And of course, me being a, a young, dumb, uh, easily swayed individual I, I said absolutely i am and uh, then i that, that's pretty much how i became an actuary nice now in your case you know in for the people that are listening what does being an actuary means what is that yes yeah, so actuaries are usually found in the insurance space and i'm, I'm making them sound like a exotic species which they are they're, they're, they're a little <laughs> Well, uh, we, we collect calculators uh, for some reason, uh, but essentially we use quantitative analyses to quantify risk, right? So we use all kinds of models and data to figure out um, how we can price risk, how we can quantify it. And what I relate this to is basically insurance or risk is, is associated with like unwanted volatility. Right. And what we can do as actuaries is we can quantify the impacts of that volatility and say, if you don't want that volatility anymore, uh, you can pay me to essentially transfer it. And that transferring of the volatility of you know, when things are bouncing up and down to a steady state is, is what insurance is. Insurance is just a transfer of risk. And you need someone who's actually going to price that transfer of risk. And actuaries do that particularly well. So thank you for that. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be able to really now get an understanding for that. But in your case, you know, it was very interesting because you did a little of the corporate route and then from there you switched to the consulting route. So how was that kind of like transition of events, you know, working out there? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I, I started off at the National Council on Compensation Insurance, which is kind of one of the, one of the top insurance entities in the work comp space. And what they do is they collect all kinds of data from all the insurance companies in like 40 of the 50 states. And then they provide guidance on how to how to price things, you know, all kinds of stuff. I had the task I, I don't think anyone at the company wanted of legislative pricing and analysis, which basically uh, when legislature wanted to change something in that state regarding workers' comp, they would write it all up and send it to NCCI and say, how is this going to impact my state? 
right? It's going to lower work comp costs, going to increase. What, what, what's going to happen? And so that would end up on my desk. And I'd go through it, find the changes. And then I get to pull all kinds of data and figure out, this is like a big, hairy math problem, of how this is actually going to impact that particular state. So there was really no template of how to do this. Sometimes there was, like there were these automatic changes which happened. But generally, it was a very kind of entrepreneurial problem, right? Like something that hadn't been done before. You had to be innovative to do it. And I, I love that. I absolutely love doing that. And I, I was I kind of felt like a consultant as I did that. And uh, th things went well at NCCI, and they you know, they wanted to progress beyond uh, what I was doing. And when that came up, when the opportunity to continue to, to grow in the company came up, I, I was reluctant to do the other things, the kind of cog in the wheel, corporate type things. And so I, I, I started searching for a job as a consultant and found something that was a you know, boutique firm uh, where I could help out you know, various insurance companies and do some innovative stuff. And that's when I shifted over to the consultancy side. Now, how do you land from the, basically the consulting side of things to all of a sudden you go back to being recruited by a firm and then it's like, okay, you know, now we're going to startup world. So what was that process of entering startup land? What, what did that look like? Yeah, so at, while I was doing consulting, I, I got to have some great experiences, and uh, an insurance company reached out and was really interested in building out some cool stuff on the embedded insurance space, specifically in the jewelry insurance space. And that that idea of doing something novel in insurance and building a team around it was was really alluring to me. So I joined up with Jewelers Mutual to do that. And we saw some amazing results, uh, just fantastic premium growth, great expense ratios. And we got to really change how insurance was done by meeting people like right in the shopping cart and doing some, some really fascinating stuff there. And through that experience, while at Jewelers Mutual, I got connected to the VC world. And uh, really, it was, a, it was a smaller VC group in the Midwest, as well as other corporate venture capital groups. And through that, I, I got connected to Kyle Nakazuchi, who's the founder of ClearCover. And he reached out while he was considering the idea of building up ClearCover. And uh, we had some similar ideas on how insurance should be done. And he asked me if I'd be interested in uh, helping start that uh, via being their chief actuary and head of insurance product. So then how do you go from, from that to actually starting your own thing? I mean, I'm sure that you know, it was very interesting for you. You know, you were you were in this case. You know, for 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 clear cover, you were recruited as the second employee. Uh, so I think that this at least gave you the opportunity to really see how a company gets started and how it's built over the course of time. I mean, what do you think? What kind of insight do you think that gave you to be at ease and to really know that uh, that that you had a clear grasp as to how you could do it on your own? It, it was immensely helpful, and Kyle gets a lot of the the praise in that. I, I told him from the beginning that I was interested in starting uh, my own company one day, and not only was he amen amenable to that idea, he was supportive of my professional development while I was at ClearCover. He went with him to to pitch, went with him uh, while I was responsible for the the reinsurance and the insurance side of things, and um, and having that exposure to you know, what the founders go through 
And, and obviously, it's not one to one. Like I'm not getting the full experience, right? That's 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 his baby. He's he's the one you know, losing sleep at night, all those types of things. But still, having that exposure gave me a lot more confidence to to go out and start, you know, calling people. Uh, you know, it built the network as well, so I had more confidence in, in reaching out to VCs. It, it it helped a lot. I was very thankful for it. Now, at what point do you realize it's time? It's your time. That that's a great question. I have kind of an underlying philosophy with that. And I don't know if it's right. So I don't even call it a philosophy. It's like kind of an idea. Um, but I feel like, like sometimes if you like try and get greedy and grasp things before the time's right, like they, they have a tendency to like fly away. Uh, but simultaneously, you can't just expect things to fall into your lap. So there's this kind of a balance. And it, it it's it's tough to describe like when the right time is, but sometimes you just know. Sometimes it's like things are set up. You're like, no, now is the time to to, to go out and do it. Um, but if you I, you, you, I mean, you've been there before. You know, like some things. It's like if you get too hasty with it, it's like it just goes away and it, it doesn't happen. Uh, there was a time at Clear Cover, of it, you know, about a year and a half in, where things just started aligning, and it was almost like. It was going so well at ClearCover that a part of me was like, why, why would you leave this really good thing? Like, like it's going off like a rocket ship. You're in a great position. It would be dumb, right? A lot of people would say, oh, it'd be dumb to take such a risk and go start this other thing. And this rising discomfort in me, combined with all the things kind of lining up to where, no, starting this thing, it may be a good idea. Uh, those two things working together, where it was like almost a reluctance and uh, a nervousness and anxiety, a fear to do it, but also having the opportunity in front of you. Like, when those two things came together, it was like, no, I need to do this. I need to overcome my fear and just just go and, and do it regardless of the risk. And uh, that maybe that's when it's time to... Uh, <laughs> to do it when the fear is there and the opportunity. I mean, as they say, with fear, there's growth, right? So yeah. uh, so good stuff. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So. I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, 
feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, in this case for you, it was a, a pretty interesting moment in time too because you were a father already. You had two, two, two little ones and you had a third one on the way so, I mean, a lot of people would probably think that you're going nuts for like uh, leaving, you know, the um, the paycheck, you know, and, and, and going at it and taking the leap of faith. So, so how, how was that, I guess, conversation with your wife to really get aligned? <laughs> yeah, thankfully, I, I think I have the world's most supportive wife. Uh, she's, she's been super understanding of, you know, me taking her across the country and going from one thing to another. Uh, but yeah, we had, we had two kids at the time. I have four now. And when we were doing the transition from clear cover to coterie, uh, we were pregnant with our third. And specifically when we were moving from Chicago to Cincinnati, she was in her third trimester uh, with, with the third child. And thankfully that conversation went well. She's always been one of these people. She doesn't complain. She, she supports me. She understood the risk. She's a, she's got a master's degree in economics. She's a, another quantitative person, understands risk, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, if it wasn't for her and the support that I have, the lack of anxiety that I have with her and just her willingness to follow me, um, I, I, I would not be able to do what I do, what I do. I don't, I can't imagine how people are able to take on the burdens associated with starting a company and like have a volatile home life fighting two fronts would be that's stronger than I am. <laughs> that, that's really difficult. A hundred percent. Now, now for you, when, when you finally decided to go for it, the, uh, fundraising, I mean, it, it, it took a little bit of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, it was ups and downs uh, and a little bit more challenging, or I would say full of action than what you would have hoped. And in fact, you signed the term sheet the day before your son, your third son was born. I mean, that's, I yeah. would say, full of action, action packed for sure. <laughs> so, so what happened there? With the fundraising environment, I, things were going well. Uh, I was in Chicago and I met some potential investors. And they were really in it, uh, loved what we were doing, you know, loved the idea of bringing speed, simplicity, and service to commercial insurance. And specifically, I, you know, I, I didn't want to just build another broker. Uh, you know, brokers are fantastic, and they bring a lot of value. But we wanted to build something that would help the brokers and actually have control over the insurance products so that we could empower the brokers and intermediaries to do something magical. And... Uh, the, literally the week before, like at my going away party at a friend's house, I, I had a conversation with one of them and they, they basically said like, look, we really think you should focus on just you know, doing the brokerage thing. Don't try and build your own products. You know, that it's too complicated, regulatory issues. It, and I said like, no, I, I, I've got to be consistent with the vision. I don't believe in a business like that. And they basically said like, oh, good luck. You know, we're, we're not really interested. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, telling telling your wife who's uh, you know in, in her third trimester with your with your third child that hey we we're gonna go do this thing and we don't have any support right. <laughs> uh, thankfully, she took it really well. Uh, we moved to Cincinnati. I you know, searched for another investor. Uh, but thankfully, we found a found a few and uh, built the team on you know uh, knowing nothing about. Uh, you know, where the money would come from. But thankfully, we had people who were working for us, even though you know, it was just promises at that point that we'd pay them. 
And we ended up signing the term sheet on August 20th, and my son was born uh, August 21st. And that was uh, that was it. Wow. Exciting experience. Maybe maybe a little too exciting. The, oh, my God. Full of excitement for sure. Now, for the people that are listening to really get it, you know, what's a cautery all about? I mean, what's the business model there? How do you guys make money? Yeah. So what we do is um, we're, we act, we're an insurance manufacturer, right? That, that's how we describe ourselves. And we, uh, we bring speed, simplicity, and service to the commercial insurance space, specifically focused on small commercial uh, to small businesses and whatnot. And what we do is uh, we do this in, in two ways. One, we control the insurance product, and two, we control the tech product. Um, so in other words, we, we are the ones who are building the insurance products. And then on the tech product standpoint, we're, uh, we're creating things such that we can actually kind of magically integrate into the places where it's most relevant to these end consumers. So we're pretty much 100% partnership focused. We don't really do any D2C. Uh, so we integrate with the small stuff that small businesses run on. Um, yeah, QuickBooks, uh, Thrive, Homey, stuff like that, uh, accounting firms, uh, merchant services, stuff like that. And we also work with the, the brokers and the agents that they work with as well to make their job a lot easier. So we enable them to find policies with uh, a minimal amount of information. And that just, it, it helps open up a market that was previously closed off because the time wasn't worth the money. And by enabling these partners to do more for these small businesses, it makes it so that the small businesses can actually be covered and withstand you know, catastrophic events and other things that may, that may take those businesses out. Now, in, the, in this case, I mean, you're alluding to it. How, how were you able to really get the, uh, the team together, especially at the beginning when you didn't have the budget to be able to allocate to, to new employees? How, how do you get them on board? How do you enroll them in, in what's possible here? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of just having conversations with people and cold outreach, quite honestly. I came to Cincinnati, didn't really know anyone. And I probably sent out like a thousand different LinkedIn messages to people in the space who I thought had really relevant experience. And thankfully, people in Ohio are really nice and willing to grab coffee. And this helped me as a, as a leader figure out what people I want on my team and who I didn't. You know, and you had to... Uh, tell people like, I think you're great, but like, you know, this is not someone who I wanted uh, to work with. And thankfully, we're, we've always been guided by our four core values, integrity, intelligence, passion, humility, right? We're smart, uh, energetic people who do the right thing and we don't brag about it. And when having that in my mind of like, the, who are the people who I'm going to ask to be on my team, those core values really guided me and we were able to build just an amazing uh, initial group of people to work on this, and yeah, I mean, you have to, you, you have to promise them like, hey, money will be there, but really, like, your passion for what we're doing, uh, even though it's insurance, right, has to overcome uh, your monetary desires right now. And thankfully, we found amazing people who were willing to go without pay for a little while in order to uh, to work on this. And I, I couldn't be more thankful for that initial group. And going back to the investments, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, so now we've raised a little over $75 million to date, uh, which is, you know, it's comical when you think about where we've come and, you know, those, those initial first term sheets. So how has it been, the um, experience and the jump from one financing cycle to the other one and the expectations that you also were encountering? How has been that experience for you guys? It, 
it's been thankfully really positive. I think we've we've had a similar experience as a lot of uh, successful startups. You know, in the beginning, you're kind of just figuring out like, how to how to how to get the the flywheel moving, right? And so you'll have like you, you'll build a lot in the beginning, and then you start getting sales, and like it seems everyone thinks it's just like oh, you get sales and it's up and to the right immediately. That, that that is very rarely the case. What often happens is like you have this long period. Maybe it's long just for the, for the founders, but this long period of like, oh, it's it's not really doing anything, and then finally, you, you know, something works out. You get that you know, big partnership or whatever. You get a lot of traction, and the flywheel really starts spinning, and then whoop, it goes up and to the right. And we we experience the exact same thing. That and you know, the funding rounds when. Uh, pre-flywheel, right, are a lot harder than post-flywheel. Uh, and, you know, it, it was like C- Series Seed, Series A, uh, you know, you're talking to tons of people and, you know, trying to figure it out. And, you know, Series B, we went out there with that same mindset of, like, let's let's call up all these people. And, I mean, it, it, it went a lot faster than uh, than the previous rounds, which, which was greatly encouraging and a testament to what the team had done. That's amazing. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Coterie is fully realized. What does that world look like? This, the succinct way to say it is um, insurance is no longer a disparate process. It's no longer the separate thing that you do, but it's integrated into what you're doing, right? Simultaneously, if you want to go and, and work with your broker, get insurance, the broker literally is just putting the name of your business in and it has full recommendations, what's done. He can just say, yep, all these coverages look right. Click a button, done. Now he's making money off of that small business policy because he's only spending a minute on it as opposed to days, right? And by the way, that's that's not very far off. and then, like the other side of it is like it's all tapped into the underlying systems that these small businesses run on. So they don't have to do audits of their business, right? Like everything's already done, and we can say, "Hey, we just realized that you bought a piece of machinery. Like let's let's make we've already added that to your policy. Just click here to confirm, right? Uh, oh, we realized that you doubled your employee count. Don't worry, we've adjusted your limits accordingly. We see your revenues going through the roof. Oh, by the way, this this pandemic happened and it shut down your restaurant. It's okay. We we do everything based on revenue, so we recognize that that revenue is low. So we're going to adjust your policy premiums accordingly." Right. All of those things. That's the that is literally what we're bringing to the table. Now, in terms of where you're at now and and perhaps to give a sense of the folks that are listening, you know, in terms of traction, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like number of employees or anything else? Yeah. So we uh, we have a little over 150 employees, probably over 160 now. Uh, we're you know, continuing to onboard both traditional and non-traditional partners. Uh, seeing great traction there. I think right now, uh, in the in the non-traditional space, so places where insurance is not the primary focus, so accounting, payroll, uh, merchant services, uh, we're seeing that shift towards ecosystem plays where they want to be everything to their customers. Like they want to be that that ecosystem that the small business plays in. And a big part of that, especially for small businesses, is insurance and solving that problem. So we're we're seeing a lot of really beneficial stuff in which we can embed in those ecosystems and provide value. And I know that for you, Coterie, at Coterie, uh, the um, 
culture is something important. So how have you thought about culture uh, and really, you know, putting the critical fundamental pillars of that for now all these employees that, that you've onboarded and, and the more to come? Yeah, the, I mean, the mission is to build and foster a world-class team to bring speed, simplicity, and service to commercial insurance. And so there are two components to that, right? There's the build and foster a world-class team, and there's the speed, simplicity, and service. And when we build and foster a world-class team, we, 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 we say we hire and fire based on these things. Uh, and the, the core values are key there. So when we hire someone, 20% is actually based on their, their skill, right? Like we have, a, we have a need and they have to have a superpower to meet that need. The other four things are the core values, integrity, intelligence, passion, humility. Like I said, we're smart, energetic people who do the right thing and we don't brag about it. And uh, it's great to, to hire on that, but we also have to fire on it, right? If people are, if people have a deficiency in skill, like that's, we can work on that with like a professional improvement plan. We, we, can, we can help get there if the core values are there. Uh, if the core values are not there, if they're you know, not having high integrity, humility, passion, intelligence, uh, we're not here to change people, right? We're not here to uh, fix your integrity problem, right? Like you have to have that basis of the four core values if you want to be here at Coterie. And so usually... In situations where there there is a lack of core values, we we cut ties, we we fire those employees, uh, and that's hard. It, it's hard to do that, but we are uh, we are very focused on preserving our culture, and it's thankfully paid dividends. And you've you've gone through different cycles. I mean, as you were alluding to, I mean, you've done seed, Series A, Series B, and I think that every financing cycle goes in parallel with a different cycle that the company is going through, and and in many instances, unfortunately, you see employees that are not able to really grow at the same pace of the company, and, and you have to make hard decisions. So how do you typically go about that? The, one of the first things I do with um, everyone, but particularly my leaders, is we have the conversation that the growth of this company, the rate at which it grows, may outpace your ability to keep up with it as a leader. And just to continue to be honest and provide candid feedback with your leaders about that, uh, that, that foundation helps build trust. And if you do see issues with your leader where they are struggling to keep up, highlight what those problems are. It, you know, like you said, it's different at each stage, right? Like some people in the beginning they are amazing leaders at the, the, the guerrilla warfare stage, right? Like you're, you're running through the jungle, dodging bullets, all that kind of stuff. Like they, they can do that. They can handle that crazy stress and lead people through that. But then they get to, you know, post product market fit where they're leading a team and have to implement process. And it's no longer about ideation. It's just pure execution, right? They're like, well, I'm just give me a gun. I want to <laughs> go back and fight on the ground. Right? <laughs> and uh, that, you got to just be honest with them. like, look, you know, this is not for you. And we love what you've done. Uh, but we think it's either best if you, you know, if it's you, in my opinion, especially like it's, it's best if you move on and you have that conversation with them, not as you know, anything with tons of animosity, but just being real with them and support them subsequent to it. Help them find another job, help them realize their potential. One, one of the things that we do along these lines is core coaching. So uh, direct reports or match with their manager, and they ha have a time where they say, 
what do you want to do beyond just Coterie, beyond just the objectives and key results that you're focused on in Coterie? Where do you want to go with your life? Like, do you want to be a CTO? Do you want to start a company? Right? Like, how can we help you with that? And that that not only helps build a great relationship between the manager and the director board, but it also enables these types of conversations and helps us figure out, like, if this person isn't a fit, right, because we're scaling too fast, you know, what could we help them get into? Got it. Now, imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time and I bring you to that moment where you were thinking about taking the leap of faith uh, from clear cover to start, you know, coterie and, and imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger David one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It'd be the advice I think I give everyone, which is to focus on first-order negative, second-order positive decision-making. Like, do the hard things. They will pay dividends long-term. Don't. Uh, it may seem... It, it, it may seem like a good idea sometimes, like, oh, let's let's focus on this this short-term positive thing, right? Those things are usually long-term negative. Uh, the best, some of the best things in life are short-term negative, long-term positive, right? Saving money for retirement, having kids. Goodness gracious, that, that is a yeah. that is a long short-term negative, but long-term <laughs> positive, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so they're like four. It's just like, what am I doing? <laughs> and then they, they slowly get better. Uh, but you know, it, it's the same in business. Like, if you're going to try and shortcut it and do all this stuff, like, to, it's not going to benefit you long term. And a lot of people, they see success stories like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett. They think, like, overnight they became billionaires. No way. No way. I mean, look at what. PayPal went through, and Elon Musk, when he was starting there, they went through terrible things, right? Jeff Bezos has been working on Amazon for 20 plus years. It was not an overnight success. Warren Buffett didn't make his, like, like join the, like, really rich category until he was after 55 years old. Like, people don't think about that. I mean, Warren Buffett's also, like, 90, so. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's a, it, it takes time. To, to build something. And if you're just trying to like get rich quick or, you know, shortcut it, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. It, 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 even if it does work, like even if it does like hit that goal of, oh, I, I made it to millions or billions or whatever it is, you, you cheat yourself out of the personal growth that comes through the hardship. Yeah, 100%. David, and that, I think that's very profound. This is ultimately a, a marathon entrepreneurship. So, uh, David, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, you can reach out at Coterie. Uh, you can also, uh, coterieinsurance.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm usually uh, busy with uh, with all my kids and, and, and basketball and, uh, you know, uh, trying to make insurance better. But those are probably the best venues to reach out. Amazing. Well, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.